welcome to our new location. We're really grateful to the folks at Slapley, Fran Caradonna from Holy Communion, helped us up with our new location. Um, if you know Fran, and you get a chance to say thank you to her, say thank you. Um, but, yeah, we, but uh, we are grateful. Um, we're grateful you all made it out in this terrible Missouri winter weather. Uh, I'm really grateful we decided not to make a call until we got to look at the roads at 4.30, and thank you all for bracing them. Um, I am also grateful to Ben Sanders. Ben and I have been friends and colleagues for a little while now. This isn't his first Theology on Tap. But when we were thinking about who to kick us back off, uh, I thought, well, Ben has done some of the better attendant Theology on Taps we've done. Um, and as we were getting talking about a topic, uh, it just happened that the Dr. King Memorial for this year had come up. And we both had some feelings and thoughts on that, and Ben had much more articulate ones than I do because he specializes in theological ethics at Eden Seminary, and I'm just a local pastor, and so I thought you better choose, whatever, yeah, whatever. I, I thought, uh, who better to address this topic than Ben Sanders, so um, if you haven't yet and you'd like to get an order in, um, the bar is where we're doing orders. Uh, we'll show just a couple of brief video clips up on the screen. So if you're not facing the screen, know that you'll only have to turn around for just a little bit. And, uh, and then we will have questions and discussion at the table. So if you're parked at the bar, that's cool. But when it comes time for discussion, we'll ask you if you would to come join the table uh, so that we can do some table discussion. If you all would help me welcome Ben Sanders. So um, I just want to um, briefly, one, um, <coughs> check on the volume of my voice. Can you hear me way in the back, my friend, my brother with the glasses? Yeah. All right, good, great. Okay, so um, we're going to start with two clips. Uh, one, I'm almost positive the majority of you have seen before. It's the crescendo of King's I Have a Dream speech. Uh, the second is um, a lesser scene, but it's starting to sort of percolate now, which I'm grateful about. Uh, excerpts from uh, an interview with Dr. King in 1967. Uh, mm, March, I think. I don't remember when the clip is from. But it's it's right around um, maybe just over a year before he's assassinated. And um, it's a, you can find a longer clip, and I'm happy you can find it on YouTube. Um, but the, the portion of the clip that uh, we're going to look at invites us to juxtapose. It's basically King is asked about the dream in 1967. Um, he gets asked in hindsight about what he thinks about uh, how he looks back to 1963 and thinking about that dream and what it means. So, so uh, just to get us started uh, in sort of the, the work of reclaiming and thinking critically about change for tonight, um, we're going to watch these two clips. And, and so I'm inviting you to sort of juxtapose them. I don't know how to think about these clips outside of, I spent way too much time today in like impeachment and State of the Union address. <laughs> so, um, but the thing that, that really struck me, I was listening to especially the second clip when we arrived over here, um, is you can take the second clip and just drop it right into this week. So especially when you get to the second one, just like, you know, listen to it. Okay, all right. All right.
Okay, so here's the second clip. August 63. You said I had a dream. Did that dream envision you could see a war in Asia preventing the federal government doing for the Negroes, preventing the society doing for the Negroes, that which you think had to be done? No, I didn't envision that then. I must confess that that period was a great period of hope for me. And uh, I'm sure for many others all across the nation, many of, of the Negroes who had about lost hope, saw a solid decade of progress in the South. And uh, 1954, which was, uh, I mean, 64, 1963, nine years after the Supreme Court's decision to be in the march in Washington, meant a great deal. It was a high moment, a great watershed moment. But I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has many points turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. Uh, I still have faith in the future. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years, and I would say over the last few months. I've gone through a lot of soul-searching and agonizing moments, and I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead, and some of the old optimism was a little superficial, and now it must be tempered with a solid realism. And I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go that we are involved in a war on Asian soil, uh, which, if not checked and stopped, can poison the very soul of our nation. Well, you stood in the Lincoln Memorial that day in August 63, and you said, I had a dream. <clears throat> so this king in uh, 67, who um, does not get enough of our public attention in terms of and King's legacy is an important figure, I think, uh, because he reminds us that uh, the same king who uh, delivered one of the most brilliant, and by the way, off-the-cuff oratorical moments, right, King was on a whole nother address, and it wasn't really going well. If you ever watched the beginning of what's now known as <laughs> I Have a Dream, King was given this sort of awkward, academically trained, but I'm still Baptist speech, uh, and then he got some help from his amen corner. Uh, and, 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 was, and was sort of, seriously, his address was sort of pulled back to the people, right? It was pulled into the very specific spaces where he had done work, in very specific locations that he had in mind. Remember, that's 1963. King gets involved with the Montgomery Improvement Association in 1954. He's a young, what is he, 25, 26 years old, or something like that. Um, and so this is nine years after that. And so uh, I just got some notes um, that I, that I want to I work from, just kind of keep myself on track. Um, so, so my first memory of King's dream takes me all the way back to elementary school. I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, which is uh, just north of Chicago. And I attended a school that was then called Martin Luther King Jr. Experimental Laboratory School. We called it King Lab for short. Um, and it's now like... Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. School for Fine Arts and Literature or something like that. It's still got sort of creative life. But it was a magnet school. And it was also an attempt uh, by my hometown of Evanston, Illinois, to 
um, to segregate schools, or, or to desegregate schools, rather. And so I was one of uh, hundreds, now thousands of kids who were bused across town uh, to get an opportunity uh, at an education at a school that was better supported than other schools in the city. So I'm at King Lab, and every year around King's birthday, uh, uh, we had an assembly every year around King's birthday. King Lab had an assembly, and we would go in, and we would sing We Shall Overcome, which, you know, gets really poo-pooed in sort of public face. You know, We Shall Overcome has sort of been come to be seen as a sort of too passive approach to social change. But we would sing it. And so King Lab is a K through eight school. We would sing We Shall Overcome every year. Now, I don't know how to explain the very clear, very vivid, rousing uh, memories that I have about singing that song with my very diverse collection of classmates at King Lab every year. But we did it every year. We also watched a clip from I Have a Dream that includes the crescendo that we just watched every year. And that was my first interaction with I Have a Dream. It was uh, in elementary school, and the almost liturgical rhythm of a magnet school named after a guy who had a fundamentally different idea about what America should be than most people in power. So I'll return to that in a little bit. I still remember leaving those assemblies with an awe-inspiring sense of inspiration regarding what was possible. If we would only base the way we treated one another on character analysis instead of differences in skin pigmentation. It just felt like King was right, and it was that simple. I was also in like fifth grade, so uh, <laughs> I, I, I knew nothing about structural or systemic racism, because I was in fifth or sixth grade. I knew very little about the lasting social, economic, and political impact of 246 years of slavery. I had no idea that my social and educational perspective was being shaped in the context of an empire when I was in fifth grade, I didn't know America was an empire. I probably didn't know what an empire was. But I had no sense, and I hope that um, as people of faith in particular, we're developing a sense of the fact that I lived in a country that justifies its right to interfere with other countries inside of the belief that we ultimately know what's, what's good for them better than they do. I didn't understand that about America. And so I didn't have a global perspective. I had a domestic perspective. And in fact, I had a very local perspective. Um, but then, you know, I kept going to school and I got older. Um, <laughs> what, I and my, uh, what I and my schoolmates were given was King's dream. We were never granted access to his nightmares. We were never granted access to his nightmares. And so I Have a Dream came, became what it is for many people. I don't know, maybe what it is for some of us today. It became a reminder, almost a signpost of American racial progress. I Have a Dream became a signpost of American racial progress. I initially discovered King's Nightmare through independent reading that I started to do at the end of college. Because I didn't learn about King's Nightmare in college either, which I think is telling. In all of the history classes, uh, the, the classes that I took that engaged all types of social and political issues in the West, in America, I never encountered a king uh, that I would encounter in independent reading that I did towards the end of college. The first most groundbreaking text that helped me start to do this deep in thinking about king uh, was James Cone's Martin and Malcolm in America, A Dream or a Nightmare. 
James Cone is an American theologian uh, who passed uh, a couple of years ago now. Uh, in this book, Martin and Malcolm in America, he juxtaposes, Cone does, the lives of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. And so these figures, as you all know, they're, they're, they're often kind of like, you know, held as opposite poles, but now we're in this moment where it's popular to say, no, you need a little bit of both. you got to have Martin and Malcolm. And so Cone sort of helped develop that discourse, and that's the argument he makes in this book, that to really understand uh, black liberation, what black liberation requires in the United States, um, you, you can't just have a sort of thin understanding of love, uh, the one that we get from kind of cheap interpretations of King, you also have to have, and more, more importantly, you have to have an understanding of why Malcolm was right. And if you look at some of what King, Martin Luther King Jr. is saying at the end of his life, right? So remember, 1960, he's killed in 68. So 1963, this is the most popular speech he ever gives. He's got five more years of life. And if you just like look for speeches and excerpts of speeches that get closer to the end of King's life, you can hear him start to understand why Malcolm is saying what he's saying, and, by the way, why so many poor black people in urban centers were saying, Malcolm's right, King don't know what the hell he's talking about. Okay, so, so, this, so this book challenges us to hold those two things uh, in, in context. The other thing that Cone's book, this Martin and Malcolm book, did for me was it introduced me to other scholars, historians, who told stories about King that I've not, um, that I've not encountered in those King Lab assemblies. These stories disturbed me, and they awakened me. I knew that at some point in the 60s, there were four little girls who were killed uh, before church in the church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. But I never knew until I was like 21, 20, 21 years old that the Birmingham church bombing, the 16th Street bombing, that took place about two and a half weeks after the I Have a Dream speech. So raise your hand if you knew that before I said it. Right? So, so think about that, right? This is a moment, I have a dream, this is a moment in the history of, of, of American popular culture and memory that stands out as, I think, I think if we took a poll, probably needs to be an anonymous poll, and tried to figure out how folks view that speech, it is as a signpost of how far we have come by 1963. Right, so you've got 64 and 65, there's important legislation coming down the pipe, but if you look at how folks interpret I have a dream, it's, it's, through a very, it's through very rosy colored glasses that often overlook that literally about two and a half weeks later. This is August 28, 1963. On September 15, 1963, the church is bombed. It's a response to the articulation of the dream. And so I got to thinking as I got older and I was doing this reading, right? What is it about the shape of public memory around King? that allows us access to the dream, but keeps us from the nightmare? And what happens to our capacity to understand uh, what King has bequeathed to us in the way of, of, of tradition? I'll say a little bit more about that in a little bit. What happens to our ability to receive what King has left to us when the dream actually keeps us from the nightmare? So King says in that 67 clip, you all may have caught it, he said, despite the fact, despite everything that's going on, he said, I still have hope. But he said, it's a realistic hope. So um, Nathan just said ethics We're not going to get into realism tonight. But um, what King is saying there is he, he said the, the hope that he was articulating in 1963, the dreamy hope, he says it's too idealistic. 
It was grounded in the idea, and King talks about this in places, right? Uh, that if you one, it was the brilliant use of media and the idea that you could you could guilt a lot of people into like making different public decisions. But he also says later in this clip, in the 1967 clip, it's a section that we didn't watch. He says, "But it didn't cost the nation anything, right? You've heard this before. It didn't cost the nation anything to desegregate a lunch counter or to desegregate a school. There's not money involved there." But then he said, um, America now, and this is in 1967, right? So it's the context of the Vietnam War, which King comes out against adamantly April 4th, 1967, one year to the day he's assassinated. He's talking about a war on Asian soil, right? Uh, that he says threatens the soul of the nation. A war on Asian soil that threatens the very soul of the nation. King is talking about in 1967. And he starts to talk about these triple evils. Some of you maybe have seen this if you've um, either read or heard a, a speech that King gives again in April of 1967 called Beyond Vietnam. If you've never read it or you've never heard it, I'd, encounter, I'd, I'd strongly encourage you to find it on your phone and listen to it by yourself or with someone that you like. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and listen to it and really dig into it. King says he talks about triple evils. He says, this, we cannot fix America. King, so... All right, scholarly tangent. A lot of scholars do this with King. They say, okay, he was really interested in um, being anti-racist in the early part of his career. But then King got smarter. And he realized that he needed to tend to um, uh, issues of the economy and issues of militarism um, and if he really wanted to pursue what America was all about. What this overlooks is the fact that King is always, always, always committed to the black community that formed him and the folks that he stands as a representative for. What he comes to understand is that the resources needed, the financial and social resources needed to combat racism, not just in an aesthetic way, but in a structural way, those were gonna be tied to resources. So he says it didn't cost anything to desegregate a lunch counter, but now we're talking about uh, uh, um, social change that will cost the country. He says billions of dollars. He says it's going to cost the country billions of dollars. And he didn't say Mexico was going to pay for it. So he said it's going to cost the country billions of dollars to implement this change. And strangely, a year after he says that, he's assassinated mm -hmm. in, in Memphis. But he, he says it's going to cost the country billions of dollars. So, so, um, so here's what I want to talk about tonight uh, with you all. Um, I want us to, uh, to maintaining this juxtaposition of King's dream and King's nightmare. Um, I've been I've been thinking about um, what it means to what it means to, to reclaim King, not just in the sense of focusing on other values, realizing that King was also interested in economic injustice and in militarism. That was his sort of you know his triple uh, triple tripartite oppression structural thing that he was really coming out hard against in the, at, at the end of his life. It was racism, it was militarism, and, um, and it was the way, he talked, the way he wrote about it in the, the 1967 speech was, it was materialism. In other places he talks about economic injustice. But I like the fact that he uses materialism. Because this is King the pastor. He's got a real sense that there's a connection between our reliance on our military, uh, our, our, our commitment, almost addiction to racist structures, uh, which um, provide some of us certain types of uh, comfort and, and not others of us. And our love for our stuff. 
one of the things that the military protects King Saul was our right to our stuff and to other people's stuff, if we're honest about American yeah, like, Empire, right? Yeah. Other people's yeah. stuff, right? So, it, so we've got a materialism, a commitment to, mili to the military, uh, and a commitment to racism King sees in 1967 all the way up to the, to the day that he's killed that is, that is just going to keep the nation from even coming close to anything like the dream he articulated in 63. And that's how he's killed. He's killed really beginning what he saw to be um, uh, a more mature um, a more mature iteration of the work that he's been doing since 54. And he's killed getting ready to start that work. So, so what does it mean to reclaim King beyond simply saying, okay, we also have to focus on um, economics and the military, which is true. And I hope that you all say this over and over again to anyone that you mention Martin Luther King Jr. to. We cheapen King's legacy when we make him a race guy and a race guy only. King is a race guy because he's a black American. But he also had a PhD in systematic theology. And he, was a he was a philosophical nerd. And he had all kinds of, King is a black leader because he's a black guy in America, right? But he had a really deep understanding that if he did not address economic injustice, and if he did not address America's addiction to justifying its military presence wherever it wants to be, that we could not become who we wanted to become. So in addition to those things though, right? So tell all the people that you talk to. Look, King was also trying to call us to the carpet about uh, the structure of our economy and the use of our military. Um, in addition to that, King had a sense, and this is really what I, so I just wanted to think in this space, in part because I'm on sabbatical this semester, and I'm thinking in this space. <laughs> King, King had a real sense um, and, and a real understanding. I told y'all, I mentioned earlier that I've been watching, um, you know, State of the Union and impeachment stuff all day. Um, uh, Mike, Pastor Mike very, very uh, smartly shared with me that he's not preaching on Sunday, so he's taking the week off politics, which is very smart. <laughs> <laughs> If you, if that's all you watch, so so this is me trying to make trying to sort of make this somewhat theological for a flag. Um, if that's all you watch, if all you watch is, is the news, um, then um, and especially if you're liberally or progressively inclined and you think that um, that the way that our president is moving um, is not consistent with the gospel of Jesus, if you think that um, that um, if you, like me, think that there's something um, irreconcilable between put America first and what you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. If you can see if like that, if that bothers you, okay, then, then, then we have to think inside of this. King got to the point in 1967 where he was discouraged and he was tired and he was beaten up. And by many measurements, he was losing. He was not winning. There are some scholars who have tried to like calculate King's approval rating, and it makes our president look good. King was not popular in 1966, 67, 68, because he came out against the Vietnam War, which led him to being labeled a communist. But somehow in 67, King says, I still have hope. So reclaiming King, it's not just about reclaiming King's legacy. What I want us to think about tonight is how we reclaim the, the hope that drove King. How He knows he's losing. He knows he's not popular. He says, but I haven't lost hope. 
there's a difference, I think, and King understood this difference between winning, which drives politics as we know it. The purpose of politics is to win now or to set yourself up to win later. If you're going to be good at politics, you should know that. You're either winning now or you're setting yourself up to win later. King made a King understood the distinction between winning and witnessing for the gospel. One of the ways that we de-radicalize King is by pulling him away from the Christian faith and just making him a democratic race man for America. The thing that drove his work was the belief that his life, his life, was not the point of it all. He was a part of a whole. And that meant that even when the folks that, that, um, that he agreed with were in the minority, and I, so some of us in this room may need this in this sort of political season, right? When it, when it looks like he's in the minority, he doesn't lose hope and he, he, he stays committed. In fact, he deepens his commitment to the work. He deepens his commitment to the work. What does it mean to try to reclaim that hope? A hope that dispossesses us of ourselves and reminds us that we do not first belong to ourselves. We belong to the community that God has called us to be a part of. That's what it means to reclaim King. Because so, if we only reclaim King topically, um, if we only reclaim King based on the topics we're going to address, so like I said earlier, address economics and the military and address, in addition to addressing racism, we still don't get the fuel that drove King. It's not just an intersectional analysis that drives him, right? That is an analysis that can you know, pay attention to two, more than one social issue at one time. It's not just that. The thing that really, really drives me is his understanding of himself, which is rooted not in, not primarily in American democracy. So this is an argument I'm making, and many scholars will disagree with me. It's, that's not where King's hope is. It's not in the hope that, well, if you just give people the right information, they'll, write, they'll make the right decisions. That was not King's hope. King's hope was inside of the tradition that is rooted in a life that says, even if I am struck down, the truth on which I stand can never be struck down. So the, so the, the push that I want to make today is that reclaiming King's legacy is about how we build those pockets, those pockets of hope, not just the pockets of, of intersectional analysis, those pockets of hope that are rooted in a radically different understanding of who we are. Again, we do not belong to ourselves. We first and foremost belong to the community that God has called us to. It's a very Christian thing. And it's, it's very different than a discourse that's primarily obsessed with individual political rights. Okay, so now I sound like a socialist and a communist. But I promise you I'm just trying to be a Christian. So I want us to think tonight about uh, what it looks like to, to identify... Um, uh, those pockets of hope in the work that we're doing, right? What's driving our work? What I'm concerned about in this moment of Reclaiming King is not so much that we get this, this content right, but that we, um, and this is why I met theology on that, that we're somehow tapped into the spirit that kept him going. Um, and so uh, Mike's going to uh, lead us through some, some questioning, some talking, um, uh, so that we can reflect on some of what I've just sort of chopped my way through. Uh, and then we'll yeah. yeah, so at your tables, um, I'm passing out now, I need to turn right over, and whoever here at the bar, if you would join the table, that'd be great. 
Um, but pass these down. There's intentionally not enough for everybody to have one. But this is a series of questions that we'd like you all to talk about at your tables together for about 15, 20 minutes. Um, so here are the questions. When did you first hear about Dr. King's dream? How old were you? What was the setting? Based on what you know now, do you think it was a fair or complete presentation of Dr. King's theology? So do some storytelling. Second question, second set of questions. Would Dr. King describe St. Louis today using the language of dream or nightmare? Or what other metaphor might Dr. King use? And then finally, following Dr. King's holiday, political figures and business leaders put out statements. America observes a day of service. Some claim to, um, it should be a day of advocacy. Who has the right to claim King? Should there be guidelines? What would they be? So talk about those amongst yourselves. We'll come back in a big group discussion. I'll do some Q&A with Ben and then some facilitated Q&A as well. So you got about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and if you don't know each other, introduce each other. Be yourself to each other. Yeah, I'm going to get you in it. Like, good. All right, so I'm just going to ask us to come back together. While I ask us to come back together, I'm wondering, I had a professor in seminary who used to like make everybody go stand on one side of the room or the other, almost like an Iowa caucus, about um, a question. And I would make you do that more sort of in a tight room. So what language did you use to describe St. Louis? Dream, nightmare? Did you come up with other, especially in the city, came up with other things? I'm hearing a lot of nightmare. Ken said he just got here. Ken just got here. Somebody buy Ken a beer. He just got here.
glad that you that somebody made a, a, an apology for Dream in St. Louis. We just moved here from Austin, Texas. Yeah, that's another city that likes it. The most hyper-segregated place I've ever been in my life. Oh, don't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most hyper-segregated. It's worse than Chicago. It's worse than St. Louis. So, Lisa. We were talking about it. basement for them. 
this is this is where the history of the black church becomes really important, right? <clears throat> he happens to be the local black pastor with the basement that the movement that's already up and going, and he sort of finds his way into it through that. So I think I think Uncle Vincent is absolutely right. There is no, um, this is you know, um, okay. I'm I'm gonna riff just a little bit on a tangent, then I'm gonna be quiet. So um, I'm I'm reading this commentary right now on the Book of Acts. I'm reading this Bible commentary, right? So, you know, if you've never studied a commentary before, it's basically just um, interpretations of a, a particular uh, book in the Bible. So I'm reading this commentary on the book of Acts, written by a theologian at Yale named Willie Jennings. Um, and he makes a whole lot of, um, <clears throat> he makes a whole lot of how important it is for us to remember that we are characters in God's story and not the other way around. And he reads Acts as a is sort of one of the central themes of Acts, right? We are characters in God's story and not the other way around. Which means that if God is going to, and God is, going to move in St. Louis, right? It's going to be because um, we are attuned and committed to being the type of people who are faithful enough to lay our bodies and our lives on the line. And when Dr. Harding passed, he was working on a project called, the, you may know this, the Veterans of Hope Project. And what he was doing is he was recording the stories of folks who were lesser known, right? There's enough out there on King. He's written books on King. There's enough. He was recording the story of lesser known folks who have been involved in the movement. Because Uncle Vincent believed that it was the telling of those stories that could help tradition the hope that drove King and not just the sort of public image that, that King became. So. so you just played with that tradition as a verb. Um, and you I, are smooth as an egg. Yeah, well, this smooth. <laughs> you, you pun it, so, so that's another person we share, which is uh, Orlando Espin, uh, uses tradition as a verb. And part of what he talks about it, and I, I mean, like, the way that you analyzed uh, Cohen's assessment of King yeah. around um, what does it mean to be, and, and, and King about, you know, like, he's not just, you don't just put him in the box of race yeah. but as Spien would argue that where we tradition where we come from what our um, what our context is we can't ever leave behind or we're doing this huge disservice so what is it I, I would ask you you know like you're a black theologian working on King what other I mean like you could talk about Orlando Espin if you want to but but what are the other voices <coughs> that know their context that you're listening to that you find help shed light on the context that you're working in? Um, and there are so many, there, man, there are so many. Because context is such a hot-button topic in academic theology right now, being contextual. Um, this is where I think liberation theology has really made some significant transformations in what it means to be a theologian when it reflects on Christian faith. You know, for a long time, theologians wrote about faith as if time and space didn't matter. As if it didn't matter that I'm living in, you know, Germany in the 18th century, or the United States in the 19th, or France in the 16th, right? And you just sort of, it was just abstract. And folks who are marginalized, especially in the mid-20th century, started to do theologies in ways that said, look, if you're not telling me where you're from, like you're concealing a bunch of stuff that's really important to being able to understand why you interpret the gospel as you do. Um, so there's so many folks that are doing this. I want to make another plug for Willie Jennings because one of the things that he helps us understand, he makes this very, um, he makes this very, what I think is a very important connection between um, 
especially Western society's obsession with private property and our relationship to context, which he talks about as space, but I read it as contextual, right? In other words, um, and so Nathan, you've, you've heard some of this already, right? So I've been thinking about this. There, there's a, um, when, when space, which is for Christians is to say creation, becomes private property to be sliced up for folks who can own it, right? In many ways, he's saying back to the folks who have made contextualism, uh, contextuality such an important topic in, in theology. Yeah, context is important, but even context presupposes a certain, um, a certain ability to sort of be over space. Yeah. That sort of takes us out of creation. Like, as human beings, we're a part of creation. So um, this is one of the moves that I think Willie Jennings helps us to make. It's not a very far jump from thinking that you can own a part, a piece of land. Think of, I mean, he, you know, he presses really hard into like colonial ways of thinking and how they differed from indigenous ways of thinking in terms of how we relate to space, right? Again, this is just sort of riffing on this context question. Um, it's not a very far jump from thinking that you can own a piece of land to thinking that you can own a human being. Right. Now for Christians, we have to take this especially serious because, um, the stuff that we're told that we own, right? That, no, there's you know, issues of eminent domain, if there are any lawyers in the room and stuff like that. I understand that I don't. I own the house. I don't actually own the land. And if the government wanted to, they could come in and say, hey, we know you bought this house, but we need the land that your house is on and make you kick me out. But Jennings's point is that there's this logic in what it means to be Western, what it means to be a product of that colonial way of thinking that makes land, all land, potentially ownable space. But God made that. So why are we surprised that the same culture, the same thing, this is our culture, this is our society. Me and my wife just bought a house in August. This is us. The same culture that thinks you can own land teaches us that if they're barbarous enough, you can own people, and it'll be for the good of the gospel. Now we say all that's silly. We all don't believe that anymore. But I think in addition to understanding our own context, using our own personal stories, learning the personal stories of the communities inside of which we find ourselves in, in this particular moment, in addition to that vital work, the vital to social change, right? Coming to terms with what it means to be, especially Christians, people of faith, to think that we can own a piece of creation. And to have that ownership and the economics that drive the logic of it be the thing that centers us. That's not Christian faith. Now we have a right to it politically, economically, socially. We have a right to it. If you come to my house, this country says I have the right, thanks to the Second Amendment, to tell you that I want you to leave in very specific terms. Because I own land, so the ownership of land also gives me the right to protect my piece of God's creation, violently if need be. And we've not yet come to terms with that. And until we come to terms with that, our ability to come to terms with the centrality of context, I think, is you know we're sort of we're sort of touch and go on that. Um, so that's long-winded, but what? <clears throat> go ahead. I want to piggyback on it, but it yeah, isn't yeah. that largely the challenge of Christianity within, in that we're all kind of operating within a, a societal construct that really isn't real. I think a good example. My, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is like Joshua, they're about to go before right, and then an angel pops up, and uh, Joshua's like, uh, are you with us or against yeah. us? And the angel just supes and goes, look, I leave the Lord's arms, like I'm yeah. above all this human stuff. Yeah. You 
you know. And I think that as Christians, that even when we're discussing politics, political matters, or socioeconomic matters, things like that, at the end of the day, our standards are really still pretty above that. To go over what King said, he says that the church is supposed to be the conscience of the thing. So we're the ones that's supposed to be guiding the ship. We're the rudder. Understanding that the construct itself is already flawed. Yeah. All we're trying to do is move it closer to the truth that is of the gospel. So the, I guess so going back to you, the challenge is how do we attack that, A, without compromising, but also doing it, operating, knowing that we have to change the construct itself. That mm. That's a good question, man. I, I, I think that you're right in the sense of... Um, you know, there, there, are, there are just so many biblical stories and themes that are trying to pull us sort of out of the mess, right? I was chuckling, you know, earlier talking about Mike. Like, I'm not doing politics this week. I'm not preaching on Sunday. Like, that is important pastoral Sabbath. And I, I, I mean that. I mean that. Like, because to be a good pastor, right, Carl Bart would always say you have to do theology with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. But that's exhausting. Like, I'm going into sabbatical, and I'm looking very much forward to be able to unplug a little bit from keeping up with everything that's happening there. That's tiring, especially if you, you know, believe in something like justice. So here's where I would, here's, here's where I would push back a little bit. I didn't mean for that to be funny. Here's where I would push back a little bit. Um, I don't think that it's the, I think that the idea that the church is supposed to be the rudder is actually a product of um, Christianity becoming a product of empire. I think the challenge for the church is to remember that what it means to follow Jesus is to be amongst those who know that we don't know. Which means not only do we compromise, right? What happens in Acts 2, right? The Spirit bends us in ways that we couldn't bend ourselves before. We learn to speak in ways that we've not been trained. We hear other people who, how do you know my language? Right? I mean, so I, I think on, on the one hand, we are called to be sort of, you know, transcendence doesn't mean this is this is the important. This is one of the most important things I think uh, in, in sort of reclaiming Christian faith for folks who live on the margins, which is where it belongs in the first place. Yeah. Transcendence doesn't mean that I'm above in power. Yeah. It means that I'm not limited to to the language and the discourses of the power that drives the world, right? So, so what I'm trying to say is the church is not called to drive, right? Being faithful is not about winning. King understood this. It's about learning what it means to witness in a world that is willing to kill you. Especially if you witness well enough. If you remind enough people that really what Jesus was saying is, all of this stuff is going to pass away. The, the, I'm just going to do it. The U.S. Empire, just like the British Empire. The British Empire, just like all of the empires that preceded it. It's going to pass away. And it's not the responsibility of the church to strengthen the empire to make it stable or even more just. This is King's challenge at its heart. America is an empire, and in the name of God, it ought not be. The very nature of our values, of our priorities, require a level of repentance that we have to just develop the courage to, to go through with. So, and so the way that um, the church drives, right, the way that the church directs is from the bottom, right? We're not, we're not the rudder. I don't know enough about boats to come up with another uh, metaphor. But, but, I, but, I, but I think that, you know, this is, we've got to resist this. We've got to resist the reflex to think that this would be better if the church were in charge. 
I think that's the opposite of what Jesus came to show, right? It's out of our brokenness and the confession of it that we gain the capacity. So I'm a Baptist, right? I like to say this when I get to this sort of like level. We do, um, in, the, in my tradition, many churches do um, uh, altar call, um, which, you know, it's the, just a time where in church where at the end of service, uh, after the sermon has been preached, we say if anyone is feeling called to, be, to join this church, whether that be membership or you want to be baptized or you just want someone to pray with you, just come forward. That's my favorite part of uh, being a Baptist because it strips us utterly and completely of our control. Which we have no idea who's going to come forward at that point. And as someone who's in ministry, I've had folks come forward that I can tell you I was not ready for at that point. <laughs> right? And I had to minister, watch this, y'all, I had to minister out of a place of not being prepared, of not having even the capacity to be that rudder. My ministry became a ministry of learning. Learning this person's story. So I think the challenge for the church is to figure out how to, how to remain committed to faithful witness, even as we're living under persecution, even as we're living under systems that continue to reject us. Because here's the, okay, and then I'm going to be quiet. If the church becomes so powerful or so comfortable in its relationship to power, um, that we can be that rudder. What I fear, my brother, is yes. we're no longer the church of Christ. That's right. So, so how do we maintain the ability and the capacity, the spiritual um, reserves, to remain faithful to the work of hope once we realize that the, you know, the cross is an immovable, it's an immovable part of the story. The suffering, the persecution, the sacrifice. I'm not saying you know, we all need to get ready to die physically. But there are parts of us that are going to have to pass away. Um, I'm going to let Aaron go. I'm yeah. Baptist, so Mike, you don't have to wave your hand at me. Yeah, no, I'm all right. Um, so going back to the first question, I think you made a, uh, the conversation went to a very interesting, I think, uh, proposition about how empire works and the tools of empire. Yeah. So the thing that came to mind for me was the raising up the individual and the individual legacy um, as a as a tool of empire. You guys both pointed out very clearly one that King's ongoing legacy involves community, but then even in understanding how his legacy formed, it, it comes out of community. It's all these other folks, right? Yeah. And so the elevation of King in some ways, these individuals in some ways, I think is a way to um, reduce, right? To make a problem that you have created manageable, yeah. palatable, yeah. right? Uh, simplified in order to reduce it. So, in some of this way, I think that, and we had some of this conversation earlier, the way we talk about King, the way we structure his legacy, right. is a, the way that we reduce his legacy. Yeah. It's a way to, uh, that empire is using him, King, as a symbol to reduce and make palatable the problems that it has created. Yeah. It's a lot easier to um, go about your empire business when you can make all the issues that black people face around one person. Yeah. Take that one person out. Make that one person the enemy. Yeah. Um, and we do it 
both in scapegoat fashion and in hero fashion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I was just wondering, um, I want you to kind of explain about that a little bit more. Maybe you can actually give us some examples of, of both hero and scapegoat, because I feel like that is such a relevant thing happening right now. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have a whole lot more to add to what you just said. I think, I think, I think, well, I, I think I mean, you just hit that thing on the head. I might rephrase that a little bit if you're let me, Aaron. Like, partly... Is is has we reduced Dr. King to be America's black friend, and if so, like you've already talked a little bit about and shown a clip of the context of King that we leave behind when we just teach the dream speech. But who else do we need to be thinking about putting in stained glass windows? Like who else is it that if you have? I mean, like you, you talked about that a little bit with Harding, but who are the figures? Who are the folks that fill that picture out? You, Malcolm is one, sure. which problematizes, but who else and, and yeah. where else? I mean, there's so, there so many names. I mean, uh, uh, Ella Baker, uh-huh. Baird Rustin. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. I mean, I, you, you, could, you could grab any decent text on King and develop very quickly a long list of folks who deserve, the, who are just as deserving of those windows. Um, and um, Medgar Evers, um, you know, who was also uh, killed in, in the midst of the work that he was doing. Um, but, you know, um, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the list could go on and on and on and on and on because a movement that had the transformative impact of the civil rights movement, or as Uncle Vince used to call it, the, the, the Southern Freedom Movement, right? Because it was mostly a Southern a, 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 a movement based in the lives and sort of resources and faith of black people in the South, which is crazy if you think about that in the early 20th century that this movement that transforms the country grows out of the American South, right? I mean, it's, it's just crazy to think about that. But I mean, the, the list could go on and on and on and on. I think the point that Aaron makes about what happens to King's legacy, we can sort of see this. So, you know, um, look at what happened to Jesus' story. It becomes the tool of empire. Right? I mean, this. There's something about the nature of life and death, especially when life is, um, especially when life is taken violently, when your life, when life ends at the sort of hands of someone else, right? When it's not sort of natural death, something happens, right? I mean, I think about in, in popular culture. I don't know how many of you are uh, fans of uh, the hip hop genre of music, as I myself have so happen to be. But um, when Nipsey Hussle was killed last year, right? Um, this young entrepreneur sort of just starting, you know, and many folks, you know, I've been in circles where the comparison between, you know, King and Nipsey Hussle or even Jesus and Nipsey Hussle is really sort of objected to, but that's the point, right? Um, if, you, if you understand the story of, so Nipsey Hussle is this rapper who grows up in Los Angeles and he grows up in gang life and he grows up in urban life and he grows up in poverty and he grinds and he works and he uh, somehow finds his way, to, he becomes this story uh, especially in impoverished black communities in Los Angeles of what can happen if you just sort of stick to it and then he's tragically and just brutally murdered um, uh, last year. Uh, but but what, happened, what happened with Nipsey's legacy, it, it, there's automatically and immediately folks who are pandering for what it means to, to claim that legacy as their own, right? And so in that way, th- this relates to another question that, that Mike uh, left us on the sheets of paper having to do with who has the right to claim King? I think it would be very anti-Kingian to say that anyone doesn't have a right to claim King. Um, just because of the type of social discourse that King was, anybody can claim King. 
President Trump on King Day stood in front of the King Monument, had a moment of silence, right? I mean, that's a certain type of claiming of that legacy. King is being drawn into that particular political perspective. The, 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 the more important question is, um, what type of work do we do, not just in January and February, hopefully, but what kind of work do we do to ensure that King's legacy, that uh, uh, Ella Baker's legacy, that Fannie Lou Hamer's legacy, that Megger Evers's legacy, that right, that that, that, that Bayer, Rustin, Bayer Rustin's legacy, that the, the legacy of these folks is kept alive with the integrity that it required, right? With the integrity that it required. How to? To me, that's the that's the question that um, that that ought to be driving us is how do we maintain a connection to the hope that drove these folks? Um, you know. Uh, I love this question about other folks because King and all his, his brokenness needed, he literally needed folks to make him who he was, right? Uh, King was not Superman that sort of popular culture makes him out to be. He needed other folks. Um, he needed his partner. There's a story about him going to um, his, his, his uh, wife, Lake Coretta Scott King, and saying, hey, um, you know, I don't want to, on the phone, saying to Coretta, I don't want to do this anymore. I, you know, King had every intention to be a middle-class black pastor. And, uh, you know, Coretta, to paraphrase, basically told him, this is bigger than us now. Think about that. Think about how un-American that is, right? You don't just have the right to go to work and come home and be safe. There's something more required of you. By God, this is bigger than us now. We're not our own. So, so, you know, I think all of these folks draw that from us, right? I mean, this idea that even more important than our individual rights is the type of community we are called because of who we think saved us as Christians to try to create. And um, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us because uh, we're going to need some power to create the stuff that we need, which means we're going to have to, we're going to be asking folks to share. And uh, we don't share well in our culture. <laughs> so... I'm going to pause it there. A um, couple invitations. Theology Untap is back. We're going to be back the next several months. First Wednesday of the month right here in the Schlafly. Uh, this is a bottle works, but the back room of the Schlafly bottle works. Uh, we're really grateful to Schlafly. Please um, tip well um, for your service. We've been great tonight. A uh, couple invitations. Yeah. Um, first, if, you don't, or if you're not already on our email list, um, the sign up there is uh, for the email list. On Sunday evening, I, I don't normally pitch church events at the all have, but this one is directly related. Um, we're hosting at Holy Communion with Colrena Synagogue um, a screening of the um, documentary Rigged. And Denise Lieberman, who's a civil rights attorney who focuses in voter suppression, is going to be there. There's also going to be folks there from the NAACP and um, AME Zion Church's work um, against voter suppression in Missouri in 2020. We're going to be there uh, to talk about ways in which folks can be involved. So that's at 5 o'clock at Holy Communion. We'd love it if you'd register. You can go on Holy Communion's website if you want to register. If you can't come and you put your name um, and you put a star next to your name, we'll put you on the email list for folks that are going to be involved in uh, voter anti-voter suppression work in Missouri coming up. Um, but we don't know our, our – we, we're dancing with a couple of speakers for April and March. So if you put your email list, email on the email list, you'll find out who those speakers are as soon as we know. Um, there's also, you still sign folks up Medicaid extension? What's your name again? I'm Ashton. Ashton, if you haven't yet signed the petition for St. Louis City or St. Louis County, make sure you get on the right petition, but um, she's doing work on Medicaid expansion. 
Uh, if you haven't already signed that, Ashton would love to collect your signature for Medicaid expansion. Will you all um, join me in thanking the Reverend Dr. Ben oh, See you next month. And I'm just going to... Uh